Chapter 4, Part 8 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Part 8 Study in Europe, 1849 to 1851. Many home letters mark the various incidents of this extremely interesting period of study. London, 28 Tavies Inn, November 1st. Dear friends, when I arrived in London on October 3rd, I was actually dismayed by the intolerable atmosphere the dense envelope of foggy smoke that made me sick during the day and kept me awake at night, and as I continued to make observations on persons and things, and finally settled down in my present prosaic lodgings, I asked myself with astonishment, is this the same London I saw a year and a half ago? or is it a different person examining the same objects? But now, happily, that state of forlornity has passed away. I have almost forgotten the smoke. My lodgings are clean and convenient. I am making friends, and I shall use all the opportunities I can get for studying social subjects and seeing society provided they do not interfere with my work and are not too expensive. My first introduction to St. Bartholomew's was at a breakfast at Mr. Paget's. He has a house within the hospital boundaries and a special oversight of the students. At the commencement of each session, he invites the students to breakfast in parties of about a dozen, and to one of those breakfasts I, on my arrival, was invited. The students seemed to be gentlemanly fellows, and looked with some curiosity at their new companion. The conversation was general and pleasant, the table well covered, Mrs. Paget very sensible and agreeable, so that it was quite a satisfactory time. Soon after, I was invited to meet a distinguished German gentleman, Professor Kolliker, whom I found most agreeable and intelligent. My old acquaintance, Professor Owen, entertained us with traditions of London. Dr. Carpenter was also present, and some of the older students, looking very amiable, though awkward. The gentlemen I find more friendly than the ladies. I fear I shall find them in the shocked phase this winter. There are, however, a few decided exceptions. But now I am going to tell mother of a visit which I made yesterday on purpose to amuse her, viz. to our old Bridge Street minister, Dr. Leafchild whose christening of me I distinctly remember. Between three and four, on my return from hospital, I set out determined to hunt up the family, and after searching directories and trudging several miles and being wrongly directed, when I finally inquired at number five Camden Street, a quiet, respectable house, 
whether Dr. Leafchild was in, I listened with great relief to the announcement that he was probably taking his nap. I was ushered in to a large, plainly furnished parlor, where sat Mrs. Leafchild, sewing by a round table in the middle. My childish recollection had retained a general impression of the person, though I should not have recognized her. She is seventy-two, and wearing spectacles, but does not look more than fifty, so fresh, plump, and pretty, though unfortunately so deaf that she could only hear an occasional word. I announced myself. She replied, I remember the family well. Mr. Blackwell was deacon in the chapel. You are one of his sisters. I could hardly make her believe that I was third daughter. She remembered A and M well, said they were clever girls. She knew they would turn out something remarkable, but she had no recollection of me. Their son John came in at that moment, a tall, thin man, reminding me of the Lane Seminary student Jones. I don't know whether I ever saw him before. Of course the doctor was sent for to see the stranger. I recognized him at once, and should have known him anywhere, fat, rosy, and laughing, notwithstanding his gray hair. I did not detect anything of the old man in him. Ah, said he, I know that face. And then he made me take my bonnet off and occupy a large chair by the fire and tell him all about the family and particularly my mother. A sweet creature she was. How I should like to see her again. Doesn't she talk about visiting England? I wish she would. He spoke of father with great affection as a true friend. He had received most beautiful letters from him. If my memoirs are published, one of his letters will appear in them. They had been told that the two eldest Miss Blackwells were very dashing girls and wanted to know the truth. Then, why had I come to England? I told him I had been doing a rather singular thing. I had been studying medicine. He looked at me to see if I were in earnest, and then burst out into such a hearty, merry laugh that I joined in with all my might. Yes, I had obtained a diploma as doctor in medicine. You, doctor, and then another hearty laugh. Of course, Mrs. Leafchild wanted to know what we were laughing at. Why, my dear, that girl there is a doctor in medicine. And then I must give them the whole history, and I certainly never had three more attentive listeners, interrupted by the doctor's exclamations, Bless me, what she has done, what she has suffered. Why, the girl's a genius. Where did she get it all from? Why, no man could have done what she has done. And if ever I stopped, John would say, Now, Miss Blackwell, pray go on. It's the most interesting narrative I ever listened to. You left off at Paris. 
I was much amused. To that little family, who had been staying so quietly at home in the same routine, it did sound like a romance. When I had done, the doctor declared it was a capital thing. It was the beginning of a new era. And John at once brought out pen and paper and begged me to give him my autograph. The doctor said that Reverend Mr. May from America was an old friend and classmate who had visited England about two years ago, and he graphically described their interview. When Dr. L. opened the door, he started back. No, yes, it isn't. It is. It can't be possible. It is very certain, but won't you let me in? From Mr. May, he learned that the eldest of the Blackwells had become Socinians, and then I must give an account of my religious faith. Of course, I spoke up for myself. I told him my religion was certainly a little peculiar, but nevertheless, it was a very good and very strong one, and he didn't seem much troubled about the state of my soul. Indeed, I believe that, on the whole, he considered that it was little safer than most of the ladies of his acquaintance. So, mother, I beg you to take the same view of the matter. Altogether, I met with the heartiest reception. The doctor placed all his influence at my service, and Mrs. Leafchild will write you all the news of your old Bristol friends, so I hope you approve of my calling. Now, I am writing in a queer place, viz. one of the wards of St. Bartholomew's, whilst awaiting the visit of one of the physicians. This famous old hospital is only five minutes' walk from my lodgings, and every morning, as the clock strikes nine, I walk down Holborn Hill, make a short cut through the once famous Cock Lane, and find myself at a gate of the hospital that enables me to enter with only a side glance at Smithfield Cattle Market. Punch had really frightened me by his account of the dangerous tumult of animals, but happily I need only glance across the open space, forgetting the bulls, pigs, etc. that occupy it now, and also the fearful fires of persecution once lighted there, and tried to bring back the time when it was lined with gay tents and surrounded by galleries filled with beauty, eager to witness the brilliant encounters of arms that took place there in the age of tournaments. Now a little dark figure with doctorial sack and writing case under arm makes its way through assembling students, who politely step aside to let it pass, and entering the museum, studies its numerous preparations till the hour of lecture, when an attendant shows it to a seat. I only attend regularly one course of lectures, viz. Mr. Paget's very interesting course on pathology. Mr. Paget spoke to the students before I joined the class. When I entered and bowed, I received a round of applause. 
My seat is always reserved for me, and I have no trouble. There are, I think, about sixty students, the most gentlemanly class I have ever seen. I have been here about ten days. There are so many physicians and surgeons, so many wards, and all so exceedingly busy, that I have not yet got the run of the place, but the medical wards are thrown open unreservedly to me, either to follow the physician's visits or for private study. Later, I shall attend the surgical wards. At first, no one knew how to regard me. Some thought I must be an extraordinary intellect overflowing with knowledge. Others, a queer, eccentric woman, and none seemed to understand that I was a quiet, sensible person who had acquired a small amount of medical knowledge and who wished by patient observation and study to acquire considerably more. One of the old physicians takes much interest in the strange little doctor and has given me valuable hints from his own experience. But I confess that this system of practice is both difficult and repellent to me. I shall, however, study it diligently. Mr. Paget, who is very cordial, tells me that I shall have to encounter much more prejudice from ladies than from gentlemen in my course. I am prepared for this. Prejudice is more violent the blinder it is, and I think that English women seem wonderfully shut up in their habitual views. But a work of the ages cannot be hindered by individual feeling. A hundred years hence, women will not be what they are now. The growing perplexity of the conscientious student awakening to the uncertainty of the art of medicine is now apparent in letters written at this time. November 20th, 1850. Dear E., I want to talk to you seriously about the future. That is to say, my medical future. It has been a heavy, perplexing subject to me on what system I should practice, for the old one appeared to me wrong, and I have even thought every heresy better. But since I have been looking into these heresies a little more closely— I feel as dissatisfied with them as with the old one. We hear of such wonderful cures continually being wrought by this and the other thing that we forget on how small a number the novelty has been exercised, and the failures are never mentioned. But on the same principle, I am convinced that if the old system were the heresy, and the heresy the established custom, we should hear the same wonders related of the drugs. Neither hydropathy nor mesmerism are what their enthusiastic votaries imagine them to be. At Grafenberg, I could not hear of one case of perfect cure, and unfortunately the undoubtedly great resources of cold water are not so developed and classified as to enable a young practitioner to introduce it professedly into his practice. 
Mesmerism has not converted me since watching its effects on patients. I do wish most heartily that I could discover more of the remedial agency of magnetism, for my conviction is that it ought to be powerfully beneficial in some cases, and as I find they have a magnetic dispensary here in London, I shall certainly try and attend it frequently. I am sorry that I have been unable hitherto to attend more to homeopathy, the third heresy of the present time, but I am trying now to find out opportunities. Here I have been following now with earnest attention for a few weeks the practice of a very large London hospital, and I find the majority of patients do get well. So I have come to this conclusion, that I must begin with a practice which is an old established custom, which has really more expressed science than any other system. But nevertheless, as it dissatisfies me heartily, I shall commence as soon as possible building up a hospital in which I can experiment. And the very instant I feel sure of any improvement, I shall adopt it in my practice, in spite of a whole legion of opponents. Now, E. Future partner, what say you? Is it not the only rational course? If I were rich, I would not begin private practice, but would only experiment. As, however, I am poor, I have no choice. I look forward with great interest to the time when you can aid me in these matters, for I have really no medical friend. All the gentlemen I meet seem separated by an invincible, invisible barrier, and the women who take up the subject partially are inferior. It will not always be so. When the novelty of the innovation is past, men and women will be valuable friends in medicine, but for a time that cannot be. I spend now about three or four hours each day in the wards, chiefly medical, diagnosing disease, watching the progress of cases, and accustoming my ear to the stethoscope. Already, in this short time, I feel that I have made progress, and detect sounds that I could not distinguish on my entrance. I advise you, E, to familiarize yourself with the healthy sounds of the chest. When you go home, auscultate all the family. You will find quite a variety in the sounds, though all may be healthy persons. Lay a cloth over the chest and listen with the ear simply. It is as good as a stethoscope with clean people. I wish I could lend you my little black stethoscope that I brought from the maternity. I have been disappointed in one thing here. The professor of midwifery and the diseases of women and children wrote me a very polite note telling me that he entirely disapproved of a lady's studying medicine and begging me to consider that his neglecting to give me aid was owing to no disrespect to me as a lady, but to his condemnation of my object. By the by, 
I must tell you of a scientific explanation of the toughness of meat which I obtained from Mr. Paget's lecture the other morning. It arises from cooking meat during the rigor mortis. Would not that be a delicate suggestion for a squeamish individual? 28. Tavies Inn, 1850 Dear Dr. Dixon, I believe that my kind preceptor and earliest medical friend will be interested in a little account of my foreign life. My request for permission to attend St. Bartholomew's Hospital was cordially granted, and I have received a friendly welcome from professors and students. I have the full rights of a student granted to me. I do not attend many of the lectures, but confine my attention chiefly to the practice of the hospital, and at present, more particularly, to the medical practice. If I remain through the summer, I shall gradually extend my visits to the surgical and other wards, as I am particularly anxious to become widely acquainted with disease. I am obliged to feel very skeptical as to the wisdom of much of the practice which I see pursued every day. I try very hard to believe. I continually call up my own inexperience and the superior ability of the physicians whose actions I am watching, but my doubts will not be subdued and render me the more desirous of obtaining the bedside knowledge of sickness, which will enable me to commit heresy with intelligence in the future if my convictions impel me to it. I hope you will forgive this confession of want of faith, which I do not venture to make to my present instructors, for the English are in general too conservative to have sympathy with unbelief, however honest. I do not find so active a spirit of investigation in the English professors as in the French. In Paris, this spirit pervaded young and old, and gave me a wonderful fascination to the study of medicine, which even I— standing only on the threshold, strongly felt. There are innumerable medical societies there, and some of the members are always on the eve of most important discoveries. A brilliant theory is almost proved and creates intense interest. Some new plan of treatment is always exciting attention in the hospitals and its discussion is widely spread by the immense crowds of students freely admitted. The noble provision of free lectures, supported by the French government, increases this tendency. The distinguished men who fill the chairs in these institutions have all the leisure and opportunity necessary for original investigation and a receptive audience always ready to reflect the enthusiasm of the teacher. I have often listened to some of these eloquent men in the College of France, their natural eloquence increased by the novelty or brilliant suggestions of the subject, till I shared fully in the enthusiasm of the assembly, and then, in the excited feeling of the moment, 
I would enter with some friend into the beautiful adjacent garden of the Luxembourg, and sitting down at the foot of some noble statue, we would prolong the interest by discussion, while the brilliant atmosphere, the trees, the wind, and the water, the fine old palace, and the varied groups of people moving amongst the flowers, contributed to the charm of the moment, producing some of the intensest pleasurable sensations I have ever enjoyed. I cannot wonder that students throng to Paris, instead of to the immense smoke-hidden London. Here there is no excitement. All moves steadily onward, constantly but without enthusiasm. No theory sets the world on fire till it is well established, and the German observers are much more studied than the French. Everything is stamped by good sense and clear substantial thought. My respect is fully commanded, but I often long for a visit to the College of France and a stroll in the Luxembourg. Whilst devoting all my daytime to the rare advantage of practical study so providentially open to me, the evenings were in another direction equally delightful and beneficial. I was sitting, one dull afternoon, in my bare lodging-house drawing-room, somewhat regretfully thinking of the bright skies of Paris and pleasant study under the trees of the Luxembourg Garden, when the door opened and three young ladies entered and introduced themselves as Miss Bessie Rayner Parks and the Mrs. Lee Smith. This proved the commencement of a lifelong friendship. These ladies were filled with a noble enthusiasm for the responsible and practical work of women in the various duties of life. They warmly sympathized in my medical effort and were connected with that delightful society of which Lady Noel Byron, Mrs. Fallon, Mrs. Jameson, the Herschels, and Faraday were distinguished members and with which the Reverend Mr. Morris and the Honorable Russell Gurney were in full sympathy. My young friends hung my dull rooms with their charming paintings, made them gay with flowers, and welcomed me to their family circles with the heartiest hospitality. A bright social sun henceforth cheered the somewhat somber atmosphere of my hospital life, for when the day's duties were accomplished, there was always some pleasant social gathering or some concert or lecture attended with friends to refresh the medical student. I often walked home from my friends in the West between twelve and one at night, being too poor to engage cabs, not exhausted, but invigorated for the next day's work. Lady Noel Byron became warmly interested in my studies. I went with her to Faraday's lectures, visited her at Brighton, and she long remained one of my correspondents. One of my most valued acquaintances was Miss Florence Nightingale, then a young lady at home, but chafing against the restrictions that crippled her active energies. 
many an hour we spent by my fireside in Tavy's Inn, or walking in the beautiful grounds of Embley, discussing the problem of the present and hopes of the future. To her chiefly I owed the awakening to the fact that sanitation is the supreme goal of medicine, its foundation and its crown. My acquaintance also with Professor Georgie, the Swedish professor of kinesipathy and the favorite disciple of Brandt, whose consultation rooms in Piccadilly I often visited, strengthened my faith in the employment of hygienic measures in medicine. When, in later years, I entered into practice, extremely skeptical in relation to the value of drugs and ordinary medical methods, my strong faith in hygiene formed the solid ground from which I gradually built up my own methods of treatment. Looking back upon a long medical life, one of my happiest recollections is the number of mothers whom I influenced in the healthy education of their children. End of chapter 4, part 8